welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. This morning, I am thrilled to introduce Diane Smith-Gander. Thank you for joining us. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, let me jump into a very brief bio so the audience, if they haven't come across you before, they know who I'm talking to. So um, Diane Smith-Gander has had a varied 40-year business career in banking and consulting and now is a non-executive director. Diane grew up in Perth, Western Australia, making her way to retail banking in Australia via consulting in Hong Kong, then running branch networks in Queensland, where she first encountered the various issues of managing lots of people in a distributed workforce in an unloved industry. She spent a lot of time consulting in post-merger management, another stress-heavy activity for impacted staff. Diane's current leadership roles are diverse. She chairs Zipco, a fintech disruptor, DDH1, a minerals driller, and is chair-elect of HBF Health, a private health insurer. She's also part of the energy transition as a non-executive director for AGL Energy. Diane's a keen advocate for gender equity and is a past president of Chief Executive Women, Australia's preeminent women's advocacy group. We'll get into CEW, um, Di, because their senior exec census was part of the inspiration for these conversations. So we'll definitely touch on that. Now, can I ask you, for people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, can I get you to share with us who you are as a human being? And, you know, let's jump into your, your journey and your background. I think it's really important to have context, isn't it? When you're talking to someone, context just allows you to understand where they're coming from a whole lot better. That's why I really enjoy hearing a welcome to country because in a welcome to country, the person welcoming you generally gives you their context. So I'm in ZIP headquarters today on the land of the Gadigal of the Aora Nation. And so I'm paying respects to elders past, present and emerging. Now, I was born in the late 1950s to a couple of people who had both left school well before they should have because of economic circumstances in their families. Those economic circumstances hadn't been particularly stable for their time. And so my mum and dad were very keen to ensure that they provided their children with financial stability. So until they had a roof to put over the head of the family that they had at least partial control of, i.e. mortgage, they weren't prepared to start a family. So I was born many years after mum and dad got married, unusual for those times. And to get the mortgage, mum and dad had actually had to build the house to plate height with their own hands. They cleared a block by hand. They laid the concrete slab with their mates. They did all that work. And so I've always come from a family setting where if you see a gap, you jump in and you fill it. You recognise that reward comes from hard work and effort. My parents are also very keen that people should have equal opportunity and they're very um, driven to drive out injustice wherever they saw it. So that's the thing that I really can't live with is justice. So these are the things that have driven the contributions that I've made. Although for a long time, I was pursuing my career, my goals and aspirations and not thinking so much more broadly. It's a real gift for me now to have space and time in my portfolio to be able to honour my parents' legacy uh, and try to be a really solid advocate for gender equity 
but also by personal example, change perceptions about the roles that women can take. Fantastic. And, um, and you've done so much in that. So help us understand, how did your career get started? Well, my career got started by accident. Um, I'd always had a part-time job uh, from the time I was 14. Uh, and mum and dad were really keen that, you know, if you wanted to buy something, you had your own part-time job. Uh, so when I went to university, I continued working part-time. Um, and then I hit a bit of a bump in the road because I found that the university course I'd chosen wasn't really going to lead me to a job that I was in the slightest bit interested in. So I dropped out, played a bit more basketball, travelled a bit, and then came back to be confronted by mum and dad saying, well, yep, you should go back to university. We agree. But well, we funded the last time around. We supported you a bit with that. Now you're on your own. So I had to get a job. And what I discovered was that the best way was to take temporary work because the hourly pay was higher. Mm. And during school holidays, I could work um, as backup, you know, to women who were taking time off to look after the kids in the school holidays. And mum had always insisted that I had good typing and shorthand skills because you can always get a job as an assistant, Diane, she said. So I'm a great touch typist. It's a great productivity tool. I'm glad I've got it. So there I was sitting on the reception learning to operate a PABX that I'd never seen before. Oh, for those of you that don't know, that's a switchboard before everybody had a mobile. An old telephone system. Old telephone system, indeed. So there I was. Um, and the uh, stat manager of this firm liked my work ethic and he said to me, oh, you know, maybe you'd like the job permanently. I was like, oh, I'm doing an economics degree, maybe not. Um, and he said, oh, well, maybe when you finish that economics degree, you might like to consider a different role within the company. And that's how my career got started, Brilliant. just by working hard at the job that was in front of me, it created an opportunity. No, and then I just kept on moving. I think as a woman um, in the last century, you were unclear if you were going to get good opportunities offered to you. And so the default setting when someone offered you an opportunity was to say yes, because you were a little concerned that if you didn't say yes, they might not offer you another opportunity. So I did move a lot and I moved quite quickly, but each time it was for a better opportunity and often within the same company, I was at Westpac for a decade, um, you know, at one point in my career. But it really was just about the next logical thing. There was never a real plan. Um, and I think part of the reason for that was because looking up in the organisations I worked for, I couldn't see people like me. Mm. And I started out in a marketing and public relations consultancy. And when I looked up in the organisation, it was all run by men. There were a few senior women, but they were all ex-journalists and it wasn't my skill set. Okay. So I could see, oh, there's no pathway up here. And then I went to work at Westpac um, via another consultancy uh, and Westpac in particular, you know, had a largely, um, you know, male board of directors. The CEO was a man. Um, all the direct reports were men. And the next layer were men, you know, and I was sort of down a couple below that. Uh, and so it was sort of hard to chart a path. So how do you set an aspiration when you're not sure what the aspiration should be? So for me, the aspiration was generally, you know, a bigger role, a role with more impact. Um, and, and that did cause me some, some problems because I was seen to be a bit ambitious 
um, you know, as opposed to being aspirational. But it's back on it, situational, I think. Yeah, that is so interesting. Um, so can I ask firstly, were you putting your hand up for these opportunities? So were you seeing them and putting your hand up? So often there was something that needed to be done that was difficult and tough. Um, and I was asked to consider it. You know, I was running the branch network that you talked about in the intro in Queensland, and I loved that job. I had a lot of people working for me, and it was a geography that had been a bit unloved. Um, and so I had tried to give really clear direction to the team about what we should achieve to be seen as high performing. And when giving that direction hadn't yielded the results I was looking for, I just kept digging into the why of it and was working really hard on upskilling people, you know, making the communication better, really understanding the things that were in the way um, of people getting the job done. And we really started to turn around. We we're kicking a lot of goals. It was a huge fun. The Queensland economy was really helping us, but we really were having a great job as a team. But the bank needed to restructure. It needed to take a lot of people out of the retail bank, move into more automated service methods, telephone banking, online banking, these sorts of things. And because I had previous experience consulting in, you know, in change management and because I had a couple of years in the, the branch and so really knew what was going on in the network, I seemed to be the perfect person. I did not want to leave that job. Right. I was actually dragged out of it, kicking and screaming. It was the one time I really, really resisted. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the end, I, I was pulled out of that role, came to head office. And then I had a wonderful five years um, working in transformation, which set me up for many other parts of my career. But I've always had a sneaking suspicion that by leaving that line role too early, I missed a chance for more senior line roles within the bank. Okay. Um, we'll circle back around to that as well. I just want to ask you, and one of the sort of premises of this series is around, you know, no more secrets, extraordinary leaders sharing their journey from good to great. And I'd just love to know, do you think leaders are born or made? Where do you land on that conversation? Uh, I think leadership is a skill that can absolutely be learned. Um, you know, I think we hear a lot about differences between men and women, um, and I don't agree that there are core differences apart from the obviously biological yeah. ones. Yeah. I think that this nurturing, caring, um, handmaidenly style of view of women's leadership and men being more assertive and aggressive and more confident, more prepared to put their hands up, comes from experience, experience that teaches us to behave in a particular way. Mm. And when you add over the top of that, the cultural expectation that men behave in a particular way and women behave in another way, um, and therefore the jobs that women should do and the jobs that men should do are quite different, I think this is where you start to see this expectation of real difference between men and women emerging. And I think it is complete bias yes. to believe that the roles that women should do are different to the roles that men should do. Now, if there's something that for whatever reason requires physical strength that a woman doesn't have, you know, sure, I can live with that. Um, but that's a very small number of roles and organisations that have those roles will tell you that they're working as hard as they can to engineer out the need for manually applied physical strength 
in your roles. Um, so yes, I, I think that you can learn pretty much anything. Um, it's hard if you've got these cultural norms fighting against you. But uh, yeah, I believe in nurture, not so much nature. Okay, so let's go back to the period in your career then when you were viewed as, as overly ambitious, um, because that speaks right into that conversation that we're just having. So what was, what was going on? Here was an aspirational female looking to take on broader responsibility across the organisation. So I think it was because I had quite um, some confidence in my ability to get to write. Mm. Um, you know, I have been gifted, you know, with my parents' DNA um, and I'm academically quick. I always did well at school. Um, I got my father's sporty gene so I could run fast, you know. So I did develop a bit of a view that, well, sure, I can do things. You know, I'm smart and I'm swift, and I'm committed. Um, so let me have a go. Let me lead that project. Let me be the one that can do that piece of work. So it wasn't really putting my hand up for roles, yes. but it was putting my hand up for discretionary effort. And when, who's going to do this? You know, I'd leap forward. Um, and when you leap forward, other people go backwards. Um, and, you know, you get the view oh that person's a bit sharp elbowed you know they want to push other people out of the way they want to do all the plum pieces of work that's around the place they think they know the right answer um, I had a very strong um, mentor during my career in John Michelle who ended up chairing the ANZ bank for a period and John pointed out to me that if I was going to take this view that I was typically right I was likely to be seen by people that I was working with and particularly people I was leading as a bit oppositional, you know, not welcoming of other people's ideas. Because if you're always right, then there's not much room for other people to contribute. And Diane, what if you're actually not right? What if someone in your team has a bit of experience that you don't have or a little bit of um, insight that you haven't been able to build? And they've got the answer to ensuring that the team doesn't fail on this one. You're not much of a leader or a manager if you haven't been able to pull that out of your team. What brilliant advice. Oh, it was fantastic. You know, and he had the view that when you recruited people, you had to really make sure that there was something in your job that they would actually be able to do better than you. So you had to really understand the component parts of your job and the tasks that you had. And then you gave everybody in your team who was better than you a bit of it. And I was like, oh, so you're asking me, you know, what bit of your job do you think I can do better? Well, he was pretty swift to tell me. I said, okay, so does that mean everyone's got a bit of it? He said, ideally, yes. I said, well, what do you do then? And he just smiled at me and he said, I help my boss. <laughs> I mean, it's so classic, isn't it? You sort of see that I'm working up, I'm levelling myself up yes. and I'm dragging you all up at the same time because I'm looking for the piece of work in my role that you can work at that level. Um, so it was a, it was so a what did you change? How did you, how did you do that? Well, the stakes were pretty high. You know, I was a general manager. I was aspiring to the C-suite. I was ambitious 
you know, what I hope really was an aspirational way underneath, but I was struggling with the right style to get that out. So I really wanted to change. Mm. And so I made myself do things differently. I had a coach. Yes. The coach was very helpful. And the, the coach gave me some, um, you know, really crazy things to do. Like one thing he said to me, well, how do you assess your people? How do you know they're any good? I said, oh, it was sort of the vibe of the thing. And I watched him around. He said, okay, so how do you know if they're good at giving their people feedback and setting performance objectives and having that performance conversation? I said, oh, we'll sort of, you know, see what happens afterwards. He says, no, well, why don't you sit in the room when they do that? Mm. Will you directly observe? I was like, yeah, directly observe. I said, but that they won't be natural. They'll just be on their best behaviour. He said, trust me. So I learned to sit in the room in places that I normally wouldn't be seen. And he was absolutely right. Within three minutes, people forget you're there. Yes. You know, and you are much more able to, you know, provide um, good feedback. I, and so when people um, ask if they, you know, when we're looking at new directors, I wait to see whether they're going to ask to observe a board meeting. Yeah. Because when I'm asked to join a board, I always have a think about that and whether I would like like to do that. How well do I already know the directors? Mm. Um, and that direct observation observation is a really interesting thing to do. So, so I just changed what I did. I changed my behaviour and I made my attitude come along behind. Okay. And you had said to me when we first connected that, and I was using your words back at you, that there were hairs on your leadership style. Is this what you're referring to? That was part of it, but also um, I get very passionate and energised. And when I get passionate and energised, my pace goes up yes. and my volume goes up. Um, and I know that that's not necessarily the nicest thing for the people that might be around me. Um, and I try to be very accepting um, of diversity, different styles that people have for doing things. But I so then... I will allow things to bubble along a little bit and it'll get to the point where my project manager comes to the fore and goes, we need this outcome by this date. There's this much work to be done and only this much time to be done. We need to do something different. And I can click a switch and go into this tasky mode. Yes. And even I don't like it. Yes. Um, and so, you know, but... Early on in my career, I had great success by being able to go into that tasky mode individually. Yes. Not great when you're playing a team sport, you know, which really big objectives require, you know, very big teams, um, very senior teams to get done. So how you let go of some things that have made you successful in the past as you become you know, more senior, higher levels of work and so forth. And I think you always retain a bit of those things that, that were done. And, and my mum and dad's style of we see a gap, we fill it, we go in with direct action, that's been unhelpful in some of those situations. So understanding where that's come from and why I feel that way helps me to manage it better. But But even now, you know, I can still sometimes feel myself you know, getting that bit stressy and agitated and I, okay, now this now is a moment that you need to work a bit more on your resilience and take a bit of a step back, be a bit vulnerable. Sometimes I'll say to people, oh, I think I'm about to get very tasky. You know, if I start to go in that direction, please call me on it. Yes. Um, you know, I think recruiting people to help you um, 
with those areas where you know you're a bit vulnerable um, is super important. Di, listening to this is uh, it's kind of cathartic for me too. And all of these conversations are a bit like a mini MBA for me. I love your self-awareness and, you know, I want to own up as someone who can get a bit tasky uh, at times as well um, and probably sits on the know-it-all side sometimes as well. So um, I, um, as I lose track, as I digress there for a minute, I... Um, I want to ask about the comment you made earlier around stepping away from that role that you loved, managing um, the branch side of things, how you reflected on that potentially um, took away some senior opportunities from you. Can we just go there for a minute? Yeah, I think it is um, very often that women are asked to do these support roles, you know, peas and carrots hot at the same time, big projects, lots of tasks. Yes. Um, and you move away from ringing the cash register for the organisation, from learning how money is really made, from really building that commercial acumen, from having those difficult conversations with customers. And, you know, when you don't build out that muscle strongly enough, um, it does hurt you when you're trying to demonstrate your ability to take roles that have got big P&L. And it takes you down a different path as well. And for me, going into that project where I just kept giving, being given more and more to do. So it started out removing the back office work from the branches and working with a group that were building central sites. And then the central sites became part of my remit and building those out. And then there was a merger. So why not take that on and do the merger execution and then another merger and then a major systems change, you know, across 16,000 um, tellers in, in the then branch network, you know, and that excitement of the bigger role, the bigger impact, more to be done, more shaping of the bank's future. Um, but what I wasn't getting was the experiences that would allow would have allowed me to lead the bank or lead a really big part of the bank going forward. And I think you get um, tied into that business of um, enjoying that new role so much that you're not seeing the bigger picture. And John Rochelle had moved on from the organisation at the time and so I wasn't getting that particular voice in my ear keeping me on the straight and narrow and a mistake I made was that I probably should have kept closer to him I should have said well just because you're leaving the organization doesn't mean you're leaving my stable of mentors and I, I didn't do that and that that was a mistake I regret mm, okay um let's talk about um sponsors then because you've sort of raised John um can you reflect on you know I know you've had some wonderful, and I'll, I'll use mentor and I'll use sponsor and I'll get your perspective on, on that as well throughout your career. Well, I think sponsors are the people that are actually able to sponsor you into a role. Mm -hmm. Now, they're the person that de-risks the selection decision uh, for the hiring manager. And we all know it. You know, when we're considering candidates for roles, they might provide us with referees but we think, who do we know that knows them? Yes. You know, who, who can I get that real read from? And the sponsor is the person that gives the real read, but has actually had enough exposure to see you perform so they can give really granular 
behavioural observations that describe your ability to do the job. And they're invested in your career. So they are trying to give you the diet of experiences that will allow you to demonstrate. A mentor, on the other hand, is someone that's trying to take their experiences and use those to extend your situational reach. So identifying mentors is a really difficult thing because you've got to find the person that's inspired to want to help you but has had that same set of experiences and is able to communicate them to you in a really good way you know and uh, no less a luminary than Paul Kelly tells us how difficult that is in his song some things you know talks about I can tell you about my experience I can hear about other people's experiences but it's probably not going to stop me from making mistakes you know doing the dumb things and probably doing them twice and it is actually okay to make mistakes. It's okay to do a dumb thing. It's even okay to do it twice. Just don't do it three times because that's really bad judgment and an inability to learn. Yeah. Um, but that mentor is about, I've done things before. I can tell you about them. You still have to go through them yourself. The sponsor is about, I'm giving you a set of opportunities and then describing them to people that are going to help you get that next career opportunity. So you need both of them. Um, Sponsors can be with you for a very long time, you know, if their career is going up and you're sort of going with them and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but mentors will tend to be more than one at a time and they won't be with you, you know, necessarily for long periods. Just don't give up the ones you shouldn't give up, like Leonard John Morshell. Um, but I think that um, you also need to recognise that mentoring isn't a marriage. You don't need to ring your mentor every week and give them a blow-by-blow -blow description of how things are going. You need to be respectful of their time. Um, and you need to know that when you call them and say, I feel guilty because I haven't spoken to you for six months, they'll probably say, I was feeling equally guilty. I'm so pleased you pick up the phone. Or they'll say, like one person said to me, it's so lovely to hear from you. I've been feeling guilty. I've been so very busy and you've been so respectful of my time. Thank you. Yes. You know, so um, mentors are, are, are really tricky people to be handled with, you know, great care and respect because they are giving you a gift. You said to me at one point that you had, um, you possibly should have broadened out the number of mentors or sponsors that you'd kind of tied yourself to someone at one stage in your career. Yeah, and I've got better at it as I've got older. A couple of my favourite mentors are my 20-year-old nephew, William, who's a queer advocate um, studying actuarial science at ANU. Yes. Um, there is absolutely nothing I can do to be a 20-year-old gay man. Um, and so being able to, you know, understand from Will what's going on in the minds of younger people and what some mm. things mean. You know, I can ask dumb questions to Will mm. and he's still going to love me after. Um, <laughs> and I have a young man um, in his late 20s, Conrad Liveris. A lot of people know about the, you know, um, reciprocal mentoring relationship that I have with Conrad. I met him in Twitter. Uh, because we were commenting on the same things and so we connected and then we started DMing and then we decided about three years in we might have a coffee um, so we had a coffee in Cottesloe uh, and those have been fantastic relationships for me because they have really you know kept me with a, a much better um, understanding of that generation and that's very important at ZIP obviously um, but I think 
because mum and dad were very self-sufficient, you know, you become a bit of a self-sufficient person, you know, that direct action, like I said, know it all, do it all. Um, and so I, I didn't build as many and as strong um, mentors as I, as I probably should have along the way. And I think there were some people that tried to support me, but I didn't quite recognise it. I remember one older than me gentleman in um, Queensland country zone when, when I was up with the branch network and he was running credit and he could see that I was gapping on that. Um, and I look back now at the way he interacted with me and he was trying in his way to pull me in to educate me and help me. And I didn't see it for what it was. I needed to be more open at that stage that was oppositional Diane um, not hearing the signals from someone else so you know listening for those mentoring you know opportunities where other people see the gap rather than you seeing the gap can be quite important too. Are you still working on improving some of those sort of softer skills? Work in progress aren't we all a work in progress? <laughs> I you hope know, so. Sort of things I've described you know they're they're in me they're in my experiences of 40 years of working and they're not going to just disappear overnight you know and you always have a preferred style and learning to listen to other people's preferred style to be empathetic um you know it's always going to be a work in progress mm. so Okay, so she says, why are we not seeing the number of female leaders move into these very senior roles still? Well, you know, 2,000 years of history and 2,000 years of men designing systems. Um, and there was a book a couple of years ago, um, you know, about the sort of gender gaps and the data that shows um, you know, gender gaps. And one of the things that struck me was an analysis of transport planning. And it talked about how transport routes have largely been planned for men to go from A to B for a work trip, park their car, and then, you know, drive back later. And women trip chain, they go drop something off, pick something up, drop the kids, you know, go to a part-time job, move around. And that actually transport routes and public transport aren't planned, you know, to be able to facilitate those journeys. So if you want to combine children, which women have a very important role in that process, mm -hmm. and work, transport systems don't help you. And so it does make it very hard for women to be able to combine those roles. And it takes a long, long time to change transport infrastructure mm. so things like that that have been resident forever you know seat belts are they not the single most uncomfortable things absolutely designed for someone that doesn't have breasts you know and just these every step of the way there are these biases that have been hardwired into our systems and the culture that comes with that i was at a venture capital conference a few years back for women and you know we know that women get venture funds at an absolute trickle compared to the flood that goes to male-led enterprises yes. and one woman who had been very successful got up and described the reaction of her husband's mother to 
him supporting her business. So she had a cracker of an idea. She was the one that would be able to execute it. So he stepped back to let her step forward and they mortgaged the house. Mm-hmm. Now they have made hundreds of millions of dollars. So it was a really good judgment call on both oh. parts. But when this description was the, you know, the story was told at family dinner and he went into the kitchen with his mother um, to help clear up his mother sort of turned around and said to him, I can't believe you're letting your wife do this. What are you thinking? You're letting her do this? That was the attitude that this man had. And as this woman told this story, um, everyone in the room laughed because it was such a thing, you know, the mother-in-law phenomenon. And, of course, we know that much stronger supporters of women at work tend to be men whose mothers worked. So it's a really important part of the journey. And all, so all of these things generational. This change takes a very, very long time. And I think that's why we see such a glacial progression um, of women through into these senior roles is because the deck is so stacked in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Now we're really starting to see it change. You know, um, the latest WGEA stats showed that the vast majority of companies are now paying superannuation guarantee during parental leave, that top-ups are occurring. Um, you know, so a, a lot of these really um, discriminatory structural things are starting to get blown away. But, you know, we're going to have a budget um, here in a couple of nights. Oh, actually, tonight. And um, <laughs> here we are on budget day. Um, and we are not going to have the gender lens put across that budget we won't know whether it's better for women or worse for women um you know and one of the things that's being really advocated for is a reduction in fuel excise tax now fuel excise tax is supposed to send a price signal that driving your personal car is not necessarily the best thing public transport is better we know we need to move off, move off fossil fuels. We also know that the most vulnerable and women are less likely to be owners of private vehicles. Mm-hmm. Um, so the users of public transport and so forth. But here we go still facing into how do we reduce the cost of living and make the voters love us? Oh, well, let's work straight into that fuel excise tax rather than stepping into making childcare more affordable or something similar. So, you know, these biases are so stuck in our system. Um, circling right back around to the public transport bias yes exactly exactly okay so um you said something there that um just triggered a thought for me diane um around gosh she says thinking lost my train of thought as you were saying all of that um oh you you and the breadth of the things that you're involved in Um, You know, I think we've talked in the intro, I talked about the number of industries that you sit across as a non-executive director, and I'm pretty sure I didn't cover all of them. No. Um, no. So, you know, I know that you're heavily involved in education um, through a couple of uh, roles that you carry. I know that you've been involved in sport through um, basketball association and things like that along the way. How do you make decisions about where to put your time and if I can add another question on the end to that, how do you know what to say no to these days? Uh, yes, I've got a lot better at saying no than I was. But, you know, the portfolio that I have 
I will look at an organisation and decide if I like the purpose and is it some way additive to my portfolio? And over the last little while, I've actually been deepening my engagement by stepping into chair roles, you know, becoming chair elective HBF and narrowing down what I do. So I was chair of the Safe Work Australia member body. I did six years on that. Um, and I think that's a, a good two terms. And so I'm no longer doing that. And I've been on a state government mortgage lender um, to, uh, which is a low deposit lender. That'll finish at, in a few months and I'll step away from that. So, you know, I do flex my portfolio, but I find that the things that you learn in one place are additive to your ability to be a good director in another place. Um, you know, I chair CEDAR. And so that overall economic lens is very helpful to all of the boards that I sit on. And this is one of the things, you know, I believe I am a stronger advocate for gender equity by being interested in things like the budget and whether fuel excise tax is a better answer than improving childcare. Yes. Now, if I talk about those sorts of things, I believe I'm engaging the audience that I really want to influence, which is senior men in positions of power, yes. way more effectively than if I tell them again that the gender pay gap is 23% and women's representation in CEO roles is in single digits. And last year, only zero women were appointed to CEO roles on the ASX 200. Thank heavens there's a few in this financial year. Mm. But that first economic argument is going to be way more engaging. Then when I get some pushback about, oh, we're really concerned about, um, you know, the fact that men feel a bit disenfranchised and, you know, all these roles are going to women, I can then trot out the fact base. It says, well, actually, that's not true. Because in the last financial year, there were no new female CEOs and there's only been this many and, that you know, there were that many jobs turned over, you know, 20 plus jobs turned over. Yes. Um, and so, you know, having this broad portfolio of interests makes me more effective um, everywhere I go. It's more interesting. You know, maybe I just have a short attention span or I'm a bit of a bower bird, but it served me well, eclectic interests. Um, and my dad was a, a man with very eclectic interests, but always with a helping others lens on it. And so the things that he did, um, in his sort of extracurricular stuff, it's probably what influenced me towards this Bowerbird approach. What would you like some of these powerful male leaders to, to do? You know, when you're engaging in these conversations, what are you hoping they'll do or change? I'm hoping that any biases that they still hold about the way women behave and what women can do and what roles women should be allowed to have will fall away. Mm -hmm. That they will see that women can be as commercially driven as men, that there actually isn't any difference. Um, and that they will work a lot harder to find out what are the biases structurally in their organisation and make the structural changes that create an even playing field. Because if you create the even playing field for 51% of the population, then people with those horrible, you know, intersectional um, disadvantages, so women of colour, 
LGBTIQ people and so forth, they're all going to be supported. And this was one of the most meaningful things that Conrad Liveris mentored me around when I was getting a bit of trolling about, oh, there goes Diane. All she cares about is women. What about all the gay people, Diane? What are you doing for the gay people? What are you doing for the people of colour? You know, and that sort of tone. Yes. You know, and, and you can hear the way I express it, you know, how much it upset and distressed me, you know. And my first argument was, oh, look, I'm focusing. Please don't try to dissipate my focus. Don't gaslight me that my actions are somehow inappropriate because they're not inclusive enough well that is one layer of the argument but Conrad was very clear he said look we all like what you're doing you're kicking the door open just keep kicking the door open because you're addressing structural problems because you take it away from just it's socially unjust because there aren't you know enough women to these are the implications of not having enough women and these are the changes you need to make to make the playing field level. And he said, you give us a level playing field and we'll kick goals. You know, and, and let's face it, you know, somewhere between 10 and 12% of our population are LGBTIQ and we can't afford to let that 10 to 12% of our talent pool be underutilised. And it's socially unjust to mm -hmm. not allow 10 to 12 percent of our population to be their whole selves um, so it's a real imperative you know so fix it for 51 percent and the 10 to 12 feel they're going to come along with us I'm happy with that how do you think those leaders do that in their organizations you know because so much of these biases um, it's very hard to it is hard to put yourself in other people's shoes. How do you, what's a practical thing that you think people should do? I mean, you've demonstrated in our conversation what you've done through a couple of close mentor relationships you've got. What do you think, what do you think people can do? They can be good managers as well as good leaders. Really mm -hmm. understand their organisation. Really understand how things happen. You know, dig in, dig down, skip levels, talk to people throughout the organisation. Um, really do the data analysis. Um, don't just assume that somehow it's going to float up to the ether, you know, through the ether to the C-suite. Go out and do the customer listening. Kick the tyres. Now, I'm not suggesting that somehow you'll have, you know, some amazing insightful moment where serendipitously you just appear when something bad is likely to happen in the organisation and hero saves the day. Yeah. No, it's not about that. It's about getting out there and really understand how the organisation works and how it's managed and how data flows up and turns into information eventually for the board. And by doing that work, you should be able to find where you've got inefficient, um, you know, structures in your organisation where you're doing crazy things, you know, like I talked before, you know, engineer out the stuff that requires physical strength. It's mm. always safer if you can do it that way. Um, you know, I saw it in DDH where, you know, the resident wisdom that old women don't want to work in drilling is actually being challenged. Um, and all of a sudden you find 20 women out in the field <laughs> learning the craft um, because, you know, one of the brands, you know, and a guy called Matt Azet, a ranger, just decided he's going to ask the question, how can we get women out in the field? Was it, what is it that we have to do? And that was my favourite international women's That's dust. Right. Was two of their women absolutely caked in dust 
um, with their hard hats, but, you know, a smile as wide as all get out, clearly really enjoying and relishing that role. Can I ask a question? And this is a, a real life dilemma that um, someone sort of, or it happened to someone the other day. So someone's been um, approached for a new role, um, exciting move, culturally brilliant, all good, and um, comes down to the final kind of negotiation. And for her, it's very important, her youngest daughter starts school next year. So she's got nine months left where she would love to have the option of a day a week with, with that daughter. In her current organisation, she works a full-time week, but over four days. The new organisation could not wrap their head around that. And so, you know, I just wonder if you were faced with that sort of dilemma, would you take the number one candidate, clearly was because was pursued hard, the number one candidate for the role who will deliver, has got a track record of delivering, works full time, is totally flexible on that other day, just doesn't want to be in the office. Would you take that person or the second best candidate who was happy to do Monday to Friday? Well, that's not a choice. I mean, clearly you would take that first candidate unless there was actually something in the business, you know, like was this a heart surgeon who couldn't work from home? You know, like, I mean, what was it about this job? Because if all it was was a bias that, you know, you have to be there five days a week to do the job because I'm not a clever enough manager to work out how to manage people remotely it's probably not an organization you want to be part of is it I mean that really sad story that you're outlining there one day someone will be the first person to break that company's bias and be able to move in and, and do that job in that way but boy have we not learned during COVID that it's absolutely possible to do things remotely good good heavens you know I was at McKinsey from 2000 to 2007 and in those eight years the number of times that I was able to be Monday to Friday you know in the team room with a team you know I don't doubt there was even one week yes that actually occurred um, because it's just not the way that you work and if you can get these really difficult analytic projects done you know when you're often you're working in organizations where some levels are quite resistant to your input and it's very high stakes because you're charging a squillion for services and the quality standards are really high you know if you can manage that without it being 100% face time you know there are so many things um, you know that have been managed in this remote way for a very very long time Mm. Um, it's just crazy that at this point, people don't recognise that. I wonder whether in the interview process, though, that candidate needed to recognise that it might not have been um, going to be offered and was there ways of gleaning from the company's website, from talking to people that already worked there, from looking at, you know, whatever the um, online communities are of, of those that company's workers to find out whether this was likely to be an issue and maybe at the beginning of the process start to work out how to make the case. Maybe. When I know that things are going to be a bit difficult like that, I will try to help coach them through the decision. Um, You know, I remember when I was seeking a chair role, I already had one, and I knew that there would be, "Mm, I wonder if anybody, but particularly a woman, 
would actually be able to do two of these chair roles simultaneously. So I would talk about how fortunate I had been to sit on the West Farmers Board, so I'm giving myself reference power, yes. excellent board um, for you know, a long period of time. Bob Avery was chairing Borrell and West Farmers simultaneously, Borrell in Sydney. And I would tell the story about what I had learned because the minute the words Bob Avery came out of my mouth, you could see people go, huh, she's comparing herself to Bob Avery. Yes. Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, wait until I started comparing myself to Michael Cheney. <laughs> you know, really got, so, you know, I've been in a room with these men. I have learned a great deal from them. I'd like to think they learned a few things from me as well. Mm. Um, you know, and uh, I think that, the, that thing of letting them see that there, this can be done. There are people already doing it. And I am like them because and, and experiences I've had and how I've learned and how I've taken myself to the point of being able to do this. Now, should we have to do this? Probably not in that depth and probably it is a bit unfair, but for heaven's sakes, it's a job you want. So prepare and have your case ready to go because, of course, you should be able to describe your experiences and why they've fitted you for the job and why you, you know, are, are most valid for it. So, so don't feel that you're doing something which is unusual because, of course, everyone, man, woman, no matter, you know, how you identify, you have to be able to, you know, make your case to win that role. Do women have to do a bit extra? Yes, we do, but suck it up. You know, I think the writing, the writing was on the wall when uh, two senior people said, yes, we can work with you, we can make that work, but the CEO is not on board, so we're going to have to keep it on the down low. And I think oh. that, <laughs> that, was the, that was the red flag in that one. Diane, um, have you ever had moments of sort of self-doubt along the way in your own career, moments where you've held yourself back from an opportunity? Look, I think, you know, everyone has moments of self-doubt. How can you be an aspirational executive, an aspirational person, and not ask yourself from time to time, can I really do this? Should I really be putting my hand up for this? How does this actually work and fit in? Um, and so, you know, I don't think there's a time when I've held myself back from something. There are times when maybe I've not given all of myself to a particular activity. Um, and, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a fantastic team when I was working on the Bank of Melbourne integration um, and we were a very um, motivated team of self-learners. Mm. And we'd actually brought in someone externally to um, work on our team building and our learning process. So it was something we paid a lot of attention to. Um, and so I was able to get really good feedback from people in my team, um, you know, who were able to identify when the whole Diane wasn't coming out for whatever reason and that's generally when there is some self-doubt either about your capability or decisions that you've made you know judgment calls and so forth um, and judgment calls are called that because they involve judgment you know they're, they're not black and white there are always shades of gray um, and so I think it's perfectly fine to have um, a reflective gene um, but when it becomes um, limiting because it does hold you back. Uh, that's when you've really got to ask the question about what's at work 
you know, and maybe it's you just are not feeling quite as resilient. Everyone needs to own their own resilience. It's like a bucket with a hole in it. You keep needing to top the bucket up on a regular basis and you need to understand what allows you to top the bucket up. Um, for me, it's uh, time alone, um, mm. self-reflection, one-on-one um, -on -one interaction with people. Um, as I talk to you, I am building my resilience, you know, every step of the way because I'm having the lovely time of reflecting yeah. you know, on what I've done, why I've done it, um, you know, and having insights about myself because of the questions that you ask me. Um, if so, only everyone viewed this activity um, in that way, think how easy job interviews would be. That's all you're doing. Yes, exactly. Isn't that yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I used to say to people like McKenzie, they come in, they're petrified, you know, really go, I'm so, this is so important, you know, my career will be over if I, you know, we'll never get started if I don't get this McKinsey role. And I would say to them, we're really excited to have you here to interview with us. We really hope you're going to go really well because it's important for us to get the best people into McKinsey and not everybody gets an interview. So we actually have aligned interest here. And you could see with the people that sort of went, oh, you know, they'd get it and they would be you know, much more relaxed. You know, people at interview want you to do well. They That's want right. to have a difficult choice of fantastic candidates. They're not there to gotcha you, you know, or, or try to. And if they are, you don't want to work there anyway. That's right. So final question that I ask everybody is, what does brave feminine leadership mean to you and do you think it needs to change? Well, of course it needs to change because we just want it to be leadership, not feminine leadership. We don't want to have that qualifier. But we are where we are. And so if you're going to be a brave female leader, you have to accept the fact that our leadership is out there on a non-level playing field and you have to adjust. So you've got to be incredibly nuanced, really articulate. You've got to have all of your facts lined up. You've got to be prepared for knockbacks. So I think the most important thing is that you actually have to be out there, you know, with a perspective, really solidly leading your people, you know, right from the front. Brilliant. Diane, thank you for adding your voice to our conversation, being so generous with your time and continuing to, you know, have such a strong and varied portfolio where you can contribute. Very much my pleasure. I've been delighted with this conversation. Fabulous. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.